Okay, so we're going to restart. Um, we're moving right into an, we are uh, going to move into another case-based discussion, this time about sexually transmitted infections. And my the co-chair of this year's meeting, Dr. Lennox, will be leading this discussion. All right, thank you. Thank you, Michael. Just uh, set this up down. So um, this is a case-based panel discussion. None of our panelists are with us here, so they're going to be participating virtually also. And our panelists include uh, Meredith Clement from LSU, Khalil Ghanim, I'm sure I'm slaughtering your last name, sorry about that. <laughs> oh, thank you. And then Kimberly Warkowski is joining us by telephone, so hopefully everybody can see the panelists. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for participating. Thanks for having so before, me. Uh, before I get into the first case, I did want to briefly ask a question of the panelists. There was a lot of um, cohort data presented at the retrovirus conference where people were looking at what happened to STIs during the pandemic, what's been observed more recently, and then, you know, in the, in the question and answers, you know, trying to predict what's going to happen in the next month or two or three. And what, what do the panelists think? I mean, I think that the data showed across multiple settings, a decrease in STIs seemed to be the most commonly observed thing, as you had imagined during a pandemic. Do you think we're going to see incredibly uh, large spikes in STIs? And Kimberly put her hand up right away. So Kimberly, I'll go ahead and let, let you tell us what you think is about to happen, if anything. Okay, Kim. All right, why don't we, um, Khalil a, or Meredith? Oh, here we go. We go. Here we go. So, um, sorry about that. Um, so what we've seen at the national level from a nice publication from Hillard Weinstock from the CDC showed a dramatic decrease um, in uh, chlamydia and gonorrhea rates um, in March and April and then of last year. And then after that, there's been a steady rise. Um, syphilis really didn't change that much. I know from my own personal experience in my HIV clinic, um, there has been no decrease at all in STIs. In fact, we've been seeing more and more, especially syphilis. So interested in what um, Khalil and Meredith are seeing in their institutions. Yeah, I, th I think similar, um, we've actually done uh, some so focus group discussions with some of our patients who are taking PrEP about kind of concern for STIs and in the middle of the pandemic. And the response we got was folks were having more sex than ever and sex parties and, and that sort of thing. So I, I think kind of our clinical experience has um, been consistent with that, that uh, maybe there was an initial you know, slowing down um, when workforce was diverted and clinics were closed. Um, but now I think we're just as busy as ever. And, and if, you know, cases continued to rise, I, I don't think I would be surprised. And just, I would just add for audience members that the STD um, data will be coming out next week the, uh, for the first year of the pandemic, so 2020. Um, and so uh, you'll have the official data from the CDC 
coming out next week and next week is STD Awareness Week. So uh, a, uh, uh, something to look forward to. It's always glad to have something to look forward to. <laughs> All right, why don't we launch into the cases then? Uh, this is just my disclosures and learning objectives. So the first case, um, this is a 25-year-old male, so young, has been on antiretroviral therapy, on and off treatment, uh, comes to the clinic for evaluation of a penile lesion. It's non-painful, it's got raised edges, you know, it looks typical of a primary shanker of syphilis. He has not been using protection. He has no previous history of syphilis, uh, doesn't have any complaints specifically to, related to his ears or eyes or neurologic exam. And, you know, subsequently, a RPR came back 1 to 256 after he had had appropriate serologic testing. CD4 count was 325, RNA was about 6,000, so he was partially suppressed compared to his baseline. So it seems like a, a pretty straightforward thing that we see, oh, need to go back, in the clinic uh, quite a bit, although we seem to, in our clinic, see a lot more secondary than primary. So this is um, the question, the patient's not allergic to any medications, which one of the following is recommended by the CDC treatment guidelines for syphilis? So this is a, one of these answers is in the STI treatment guidelines that were released in 2021 for primary syphilis. So let's go ahead and answer. And then we'll have the panelists discuss it. You know, it's very unfortunate, now that everybody's answered, I'll say this, that I just realized that in the transcription from my original, that the correct answer is now incorrect because it doesn't include one of the time points. So this ends up being a tr trick question. None of these are indicated. No, I'm kidding. One of them is indicated. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Okay. So, um, which one of the following is recommended? So why don't you guys go ahead and talk about it? Uh, I agree with the with the audience. Um, a thorough oculonergic exam. I think this should always be part of the um, management and evaluation of persons diagnosed um, with syphilis. You know, I think this this person had a RPR greater than one to thirty two and a CD four count less than. Um, 350 and add to that uh, unsuppressed viral load. Um, so I think, you know, some people at some points in time probably would have pursued a lumbar puncture just based on that lab data. Um, but in the absence of neurologic symptoms, I don't think that it's necessarily um, what we have to do. Um, but certainly the, the patient should be thoroughly evaluated to, to really make sure that there are no ocular otic or other, you know, cranial nerve de deficits, other neurologic abnormalities. So I'll, I'm sorry. I'll go ahead, Khalil. So all I was going to say is I'll add 
for example, that, um, you know, as a reminder, uh, the treatment of primary syphilis and or early syphilis in general, primary, secondary, early, latent, is a single dose of benzathine penicillin G. So three doses for early syphilis is never indicated, no matter what the HIV status is. Uh, and then the syphilis serologies, uh, you're right, they, we missed the three months uh, time, time frame for that, but it's always a wise idea to repeat uh, the syphilis serologies at three months, but not do it any earlier unless there is evidence of, or a history of reinfection, uh, because these titers can fluctuate a little bit early on. And it's as long as there's no clear evidence of reinfection, waiting uh, three months is probably the best thing to do. And that's one reason why I specifically picked this one, because this is a really common thing that we see is people get treated for early syphilis who have HIV, and people are checking an RPR at one, two, three, five, eight, nine, you know, like very, very, very frequently. And so for HIV-infected patients, it's recommended the three, six, et cetera. And then for uninfected, you can start at six months after treatment. So, and then the other thing that is a little bit striking about this Oh, I'm sorry, Meredith, go ahead. Oh, I just, because it's primary, secondary three, but if it's not, then I think waiting till six months is okay. Yeah. But even the, in the setting of HIV infection. So as STI experts, you know, when people are seeing patients with primary and secondary syphilis, what is a proper otic examination, you know? because most of us are just doing bedside diagnosis in our exam room if we're not working in a ENT clinic. So do you guys do testing for hearing acuity or do you just rely on symptoms? I've mainly relied on symptoms um, uh, because you know, uh, the two out of the three typical manifestations of otic syphilis, you really can't really test for them. Uh, I mean, so vertigo is one, and it's hard, you know, it's hard. The patients usually will tell you whether they have vertigo or not. The second one is uh, essentially tinnitus and how do you test for tinnitus? And that's not, the only thing you can test for is the acuity itself. Uh, but I usually rely on patient, um, uh, on patient reported symptoms. And I do the same for ocular syphilis as well, to be honest with you. Um, and, um, and so that's my approach. So okay. one of the things, one of the things that I do is I make sure that we do a good cranial nerve exam, um, a good cerebellar exam, balance exam. Um, and I think that's incredibly important as well as checking for nystagmus. Um, and I wanted to go back to the point that Khalil was making about this, um, a single shot is recommended. So there is some data that is not that good, um, that there can be failures. Um, and so people always think that more is better. Um, and we don't have any definitive evidence that three weekly shots of benzathine is better than um, a single shot. We have observational data um, that does not indicate that there's, that three is better than one. There's an ongoing randomized control trial um, that we just finished enrollment. Uh, the data is being accrued, so we will finally have an answer from an RCT um, that um, comparing uh, a single shot versus three shots. But there is no data at this point that indicates that three weekly shots is better than one. 
Thank you, Kim. And one reason I selected this question to lead off with is because syphilis is such a common problem, and we're used to seeing a lot of people with latent syphilis or secondary syphilis. But unless you're working in an STI clinic, you might not see as many cases of primary syphilis and not be aware that the recommendation is to do an, an ocular and otologic and neurologic exam, even if you have a primary chancre, because dissemination occurs very early on during the course of the infection. So that's one reason why I wanted to highlight this in case it's, you know, you don't see a lot of primary chancres in your practice. One more thing to highlight, if I may, uh, there, I think people need to remember that you presented a typical case of syphilis with a single painless lesion with heaped up borders, but there's a really nice new paper that came out in the last couple of years uh, from Janet Towns that essentially shows that particularly among persons living with HIV, but others as well, that about 30% of them will present with multiple uh, ulcers that in some cases may be painful as well. So the clinical differentiation between herpes and syphilis can sometimes be uh, more complicated and that uh, people should remember that uh, when they see multiple lesions that are painful, it still could be syphilis. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add, we had a case not too long ago um, in New Orleans where somebody presented with a chancre and um, a syndrome consistent with secondary syphilis. So that you can kind of have overlap in some cases mm -hmm. as well. Now, one thing that I wanted to sort of add to this case is something that there was a little bit of an emphasis on at Retrovirus also is, what if this person didn't have a chancre you know, they just were presenting for routine care, but they had recently had their COVID vaccination. Is there anything else? I mean, just talking about the RPR with COVID vaccination, I just wanted you guys to discuss that quickly. So the, the issue with the RPR with COVID vaccination, particularly one manufacturer, is that you can get false positives after the vaccine. But remember, the, the decision to treat somebody for syphilis when you don't have a, a lesion uh, is, and you're basing your decision on serologies alone, you always have to have a confirmatory treponemal test with the RPR to right. essentially make the diagnosis of syphilis. So reacting to a positive RPR Uh-oh. Oh, no. <laughs> Do you want to fill in for him, Meredith? <laughs> well, I, I think it, <laughs> in order to diagnose and treat syphilis, you need a compare with just an RPR, you do need a positive uh, treponemal um, ser serologic test as well. So I, I think that was just the only um, point there in the absence of, of symptoms. Right. And that was the, the whole point is that if somebody's not previously had syphilis and they come up with an RPR and with this one manufacturer of the test that there was a, like many inflammatory conditions that you can have a false positive RPR in the setting of a COVID vaccine. Uh, and just to consider that as a possibility if, if the person doesn't have any signs or symptoms of syphilis. Sorry, I got kicked out. <laughs> That's all right, that happens remotely. And these are just some excerpts to you know why some of the answers weren't right, and you know Khalil mentioned that um, you know the importance of looking for clinical signs of neurosyphilis. And if you have zero clinical signs of neurosyphilis, then you don't need a lumbar puncture. We covered the second point. Kim mentioned that 
additional doses of benzathine penicillin so far in the trials that have been done have not been shown to be beneficial for early syphilis. And um, then the final one, which was a statement from the guidelines about during the exams we talked about. And, and we do have a question in the chat, why repeat RBR titer at, at three months? Um, and so, you know, Q3 to six month testing is um, recommended in patients that are at higher risk. Um, and so I think you're sort of evaluating for reinfection, but also um, I, I like to have it because if you see that titer go down, then you have more information with which to make clinical decisions, you know, uh, going forward in, in the case that it rises again and you are concerned for reinfection at a later date. And then we also had a question that questions about if somebody had a test a week ago and it was consistent with syphilis and you bring them in, do you need to repeat the serology? I mean, or should you just go ahead and treat the titer from a week ago? Repeat the serology. Uh, it's really ideal to get the serologies on the day that you're treating because in the short term, particularly if it's, we're talking about early infection in particular, the titers can change dramatically in a week. They can change dramatically in, in a matter of a 24 hour time period. And so it's always worthwhile getting serologies on the day that you're doing treatment because it gives you the best and most consistent baseline that you can follow over time. I think it's less of an issue if you're dealing with late infection, but as a rule, it's always a good idea to get baseline serologies on the day that you're treating the patient. Okay, thank you. So continuing this case, he's seen three months after symptoms. His RPR has decreased um, twofold. He's seen again at six and 12 months and it remains at a stable level. And he denies any you know, repeat sexual exposures of any kind. So the first question for the panel, has treatment failed? You know, he's a year into his following his treatment and his RPR has not decreased by a fourfold or, or more. So has his treatment failed? And how do you define failure in the context of early syphilis? So I would probably uh, label this as inadequate serologic response at, at 12 months. Um, again, this patient has HIV infection. Uh, we don't know at this point, maybe he's virally suppressed by now and more adherent to ART, but um, I think it's okay to allow a little bit longer, um, even up to 24 months uh, to, to continue to monitor. Um, if again, you know, you talk to the patient, they uh, don't have any signs of reinfection, no signs or symptoms, still remain asymptomatic from a neurologic standpoint, um, I would probably continue to watch and wait a little bit longer. So there have been a bunch of observational studies that have looked at the, the, uh, the, the question of, should you give more treatment if the titers fail to respond to therapy or um, should you uh, do an LP uh, or should you uh, just wait a little bit longer? Uh, and every single one of these studies, and remember they're all observational and they all looked at uh, the impact of this in the short term, meaning one to two years, not long term. We don't know what happens in the long term, in five years or in 10 years, if you treat or you don't treat, 
Who has a better outcome? We have no idea. But in the short term, in the next one to two years, it appears that treatment doesn't really change much in terms of you're not really likely to prevent the emergence of neurosyphilis or some other complication. And um, the titers will continue to go down whether you treat the patient or not, retreat the patient or not. And so I think the answer is in the short term, it doesn't seem to make much of a difference, but we don't know what happens in the long term if you were to follow these patients for five to 10 years. Meredith does bring up a good point. I mean, we always look at the patient, the individual patient. And this patient, you know, is a per person living with HIV. At the time, the initial time, he was not suppressed. And so, uh, you know, in this case, if somebody decides, hey, you know what, I don't feel comfortable, I would like at the very least to retreat the patient, I think that's not unreasonable. Uh, if I were to be following this patient and the patient were fairly reliable, I think I would just watch the patient. And we have data to suggest that in the setting of HIV, the titers can go down slower than in persons who are not HIV infected. And so it would be reasonable to follow as well. And that's I one think of the, the important, I yeah, I think ahead, one of Kim. the important things here, Jeff, too, is that we're treating the patient, not the titer. And I think it's the provider sometimes that has this feeling on, of unease. Um, and we have seen multiple patients being treated with multiple rounds of penicillin. Um, and you just have to say, it's okay, you can stop the madness, okay? They don't need three rounds of three weekly shots. You are just trying to move that needle and the host will decide when that titer goes down. I think the bigger concern is the intercurrent history if you're concerned about a reinfection. And that's why you need to see that patient frequently every three months and make sure there's not a concomitant reinfection or significant exposure. But Again, we don't have good reasons why somebody just may stay at 128. Um, I had a colleague who's had a patient whose titer was one to 256 for five years and didn't move. And the point is it's okay, it's a number and we follow those patients every three months. But I think if you feel uncomfortable, phone a friend, phone an STD friend and walk through the case with them. And, you know, we're all here to help each other. And when these cases become a little bit cloudy and they always do with syphilis serologies, talk amongst yourselves and get a little bit more comfortable with just saying, it's okay, I don't need to give them multiple rounds of benzathine. But, and, and that said, I agree 100%, um, but I think, just really making sure you've talked to the patient about sexual partners and ensuring they have all been treated and that the risk for reinfection is, is very low. Um, one of the questions that's come in related to this is why are we still relying on this you know, 19th century technology anyway? How come you STI experts haven't come up for a better measure for active syphilis? Yeah, Meredith. Or is there something out there that we're all unaware of that you're using in your secret practice? If only we would. I think it's it's anything but eloquent, but it's what we have. I need a job. 
And so if we were to go and find something really good, I would lose my job. And so unfortunately, <laughs> that's what we're stuck with. I think the problem is, is that as a field, um, we don't have a wide breadth of people that are interested in syphilis diagnostics. Um, and we're using the same tests that were developed decades ago and they have problems. Um, even the automated RPRs have problems, um, especially when you can't go above certain titers. Um, and so it is, it is very much of a challenge. And that's why there's an availability to ask people, um, run it amongst your colleagues, call an SDI friend uh, through the National Network of Prevention Training Centers. There's an, um, an STI warm line where you can actually talk to an expert and talk through the case. So don't feel like you're in it alone. Um, and you just see the patient frequently and talk and try to work through it. And I know I am, well, to, to recap something that Kimberly just said, you know, we don't have a multi-million dollar national program to develop improved diagnostics for syphilis. And this is like a pandemic that we've had now since 1493. And you know, the test has been around nearly as long, it seems like. But we may never have a better test. I mean, I was very optimistic that PCR would be the you know, test of choice for neurosyphilis in my naive way. And then when it was actually tested, it was almost worthless. So hopefully we'll get something better in the future. So one question that came up before we leave this case is, you mentioned you know, somebody's frozen at 1 to 256, 1 to 512. Is there any upper limit beyond which you would say, you know, this just doesn't seem like they're serofast or that they're having a slow response? Clearly a fourfold rise, right, from their initial level would be clear evidence that something isn't right, but is just staying at any level of one to 1,056 or whatever the next multiplier is, does that bother you the higher it is? And would you do anything differently? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I can just tell you, you just need to keep asking. But again, you're treating a number, not the patient. And so it's not, it's not a yes or a no. It's not a binary decision here. Has the patient had contact? Is there anything new that's going on? Um, so no, it's not a certain number to me. You get, people get more anxious when it's a higher number because they're concerned that they're, they need to do more. It's not going down. So you know, as was previously mentioned, the number is not what's important. It's whether it um, goes up and down. And when we talk about change in the number, it's a sustained fourfold change. So a fourfold rise up, that's sustained. Um, and those of you that have ever done RPRs know that it's a challenging test. It's labor intensive and that it can be the dilution. You can be off by a dilution or two. Um, when you do the test, especially if it's performed in different laboratories. So you just confirm it, you talk to the patient, and again, you share the information and have other people look at it um, if you're feeling the least bit uncomfortable. I am not aware of any data that the number, the, the, the height of the number makes a difference um, in terms of your level of anxiety. Now, Kimberly, a question arose. You mentioned the randomized trial of three versus one that's ongoing. Why is that trial even being done in this 
era, you know, based on the previous studies that have been done, what was, were people now observing more failures with primary treatment with one shot or what made the trial get started? I think the issue is that people have a hard time of letting go of the three weekly because they think three is better than one. And it's, you know, there are, there have been treatment failures that have been reported. Um, it's not a um, 100% efficacious therapy because there are failures, but people always seem to think more is better. The observational data that's been reported has not given us an inkling that there may be a difference in terms of treatment. And the definitive, uh, the definitive way to prove that is through an RCT. The other nice thing about the, this trial um, is that we have a less than 10% loss to follow-up, which is pretty much unheard of in trials that have done previously for syphilis. Some of the things Khalil mentioned before was the difficulty in long-term outcomes, especially when it's been done in STI clinics is because the loss to follow-up has been so great. You haven't been able to follow people past um, six months. Um, it's just hard to follow them. And so it's, it's a trial that the investigators are very proud of that they have in the midst of COVID to have a less than 10% loss to follow-up is just pretty incredible. So we're gonna get some rich data um, from this. And it's, and I, or, uh, oh, go ahead. Go I ahead, just Marilyn. was gonna clarify, I, I wanted, LSU is a site, although I'm not involved in the study, but it's, I think it's half are living with HIV and half aren't, is that correct? So we'll have data, yes, it's, those populations. Yes, it, I just yes, it's, it's both, yes, both for HIV positive and negative. Um, patients, but we really don't have a large amount of good data in terms of people living with HIV. That's where the problem is really coming from, is patients living with HIV that people think that more is better, and especially going back to the case that was presented with a lower CD4 count, not all that adherent to ART, um, that people are nervous about. They don't, the thought is that immunologically they may not be able to respond as well. And so this is kind of definitively will help try to answer that question. So one reason I brought this question, this aspect of the case up is that this is something we see very commonly and people I think, you know, if a little is good, then a lot must be even better. Some people are still continuing to treat early syphilis with the three weekly injections or more commonly, multiple rounds of penicillin treatment because the titer isn't falling. So feel free to say you've been treated, we're gonna follow you. As long as you're not having any symptoms, then it may or should eventually come down. Even if it doesn't, we'll continue to follow you. You don't have to keep testing whether penicillin's gonna make it fall. You can be comfortable. Um, we covered should he be retreated? And then if you were to retreat him, I guess this is the other part of it, do you just give them one injection of benzathine penicillin or do you go for the full three weekly doses? So it depends what you're treating, right? So if you are, you think that the patient got reinfected and it happened within the previous 12 months, then a single dose is probably fine. If you think that you're treating now, you know, you haven't, you haven't done anything for a year and you think that you under-treated the patient initially, 
then I think probably three doses of benzathine, penicillin G make more sense. So it really depends on what you think you're treating. Um, and then going from there. Now, I would highlight one thing. There is one population that I think I would be more likely to treat uh, uh, quickly, more quickly uh, than just watching. And that would be uh, patients that are pregnant. I think during pregnancy, I tend to be very uh, much more conservative about these things. So um, I have no problem following titers over time as long as the patient is asymptomatic. But in a patient that's pregnant, I think I would have a much lower threshold to, uh, to treat. And that's a very good point, Khalil. Now in your knowledge of the field, which would be more common, a new infection that needs one shot or a under-treated primary infection that needs more additional treatment? I think in, in, I always, well, in many instances, I suspect that there was a reinfection that occurred during the time frame, And so to me, the early, um, the early treatment probably makes more sense. So in other words, one single dose of benzathine penicillin G. Uh, but having said that, I think it would depend on the history. I think it's important to uh, sort of try your best to get uh, information from the patient uh, in a non-judgmental, non-threatening, you know, uh, to, 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 uh, to minimize any potential bias in the responses. And I think that's really important in, in our field to be able to make the patients feel comfortable uh, to share with us any potential potential exposures. Uh, I also think it's important to explain to the patient that even, for example, oral exposures, which they may not, mm -hmm. you know, relate back to sex, may also put them at risk for this, uh, for reinfection. And so I think um, trying to get the best information and then acting on that information saying, you know what, the patient doesn't seem to have any risk factors. I want to treat them again. I'm going to do three doses of benzathine penicillin G. So I think uh, it just makes sense to look at the whole picture. All right, anything to add, Kimberly or Merida? I just wanted to add the importance of what I think is different that people may not be aware of in terms of the syphilis and pregnancy that Khalil astutely picked, um, uh, brought up um, was the importance of an, ex um, an extra screening in pregnancy um, at 28 weeks. And what's in the guidance that's different from the previous guidance is risk factors that are, have been shown in the literature to be predictive of syphilis acquisition and pregnancy. And that has to do with risk factors um, as well as risk factors and partners. So I would think about that as well. It needs to be a time of increased vigilance for new infections um, for both patients and their partners. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Kim, because we have seen an upsurge in congenital syphilis cases and checking at 28 weeks should be automatic, um, but unfortunately it's sometimes not followed or not appreciated how important that is. Okay, now what if the patient said, well, I don't want that penicillin anymore, I hate those injections, why don't you just give me some azithromycin and let's see if that makes it go down. I heard that azithromycin might work for syphilis. That's because it works for everything, doesn't it, Jeff? Um, yeah. So it works we use for it COVID. for everything. <laughs> it works for COVID. It works for pneumonia. It works for sinuses. So I think the issue is that what we learned, uh, syphilis is actually a very effective drug against syphilis. It does work. 
But what we have um, witnessed over the past several decades is the emergence of a macrolide-associated mutation. Um, and we, a couple of decades ago, we actually did a study looking at uh, the prevalence of this mutation in syphilis isolates from around the country. Um, and depending on which city you're in, um, you may have a 30% or higher um, incidence of macrolide resistance mutations. So that's the reason why we don't use it in syphilis um, is because um, some patients ha already have these macrolide resistant mutations. Um, so it's been several years now that we have not recommended that within the treatment guidelines for the um, for syphilis. And it is not a treatment. It's listed in the guidance to tell folks uh, about the problems that can develop if you use azithromycin. But it does one work. One of the great things, one of the great things about the internet is the ease that you can access information. One of the bad things is you can access old information. And so if you're looking for an alternative to penicillin, you should go to the guidelines and not go to the literature because you will find papers that say, we treated 100 people with azithromycin in Zimbabwe and we had a 100% cure rate. Well, that was 20 years ago. Don't use azithromycin anymore and don't check the internet. Go to the STI guidelines. So I think okay. the, other thing to, the other thing though to bring up about alternatives, Jeff, is that people became very creative during the pandemic uh, about when they couldn't, when STD, STD clinics were closed and people couldn't get in through the pandemic and people started being very creative because we don't really have good oral options. Um, and that's why the CDC on their website had put um, a compilation of what you should do when your recommended therapy is not available. So I would direct people to the... Um, the CDC uh, STV website, um, which has a nice compilation of uh, medications that were recommended in the case of instances where you couldn't get benzathine. In, in the Dear Colleague letters, I believe. It's actually listed on the website. All the Dear oh, Colleague no, levels okay. are there. In the I don't website. think I've looked at it in a while, but yeah, okay. And these are some excerpts from the STI guidelines, basically emphasizing in the first excerpt that it's fine to just follow people closely with you know, clinical and serological evaluation. However, if you don't think that you're gonna be able to follow somebody and you've been following them for a while and there's not been an appropriate decline, that you could go ahead and give three weekly injections. I call this sort of the um, penicillin going out the door kind of approach. But among persons who are sexually active, reinfection is more likely and retreatment for early syphilis is the recommended approach. So that's just some excerpts from the guidelines which reinforce what our experts were telling us about. So uh, then the lab calls you up with a corrected value and says, you know, it really wasn't 128. We made a mistake because this is a really tricky test and we ran it again and now it's 1 to 512 which is a twofold increase from his original. So um, I think we sort of covered this to an extent that you would probably be more suspicious that he might have been reinfected or that there may be something else going on. But 
does this change your diagnostic approach? And if so, or if not, either way, what treatment would you recommend if you were gonna recommend treatment? So I can tell you what I do with patients like this. Um, I don't ask them any questions initially. So when I see that the titer has gone up, I sit down with them and I say, listen, Mr. Smith, I saw that your titer went up fourfold since the last time I saw you. And there are two possible explanations for this. The first one is that you got an exposure that infected you, that allowed you to get reinfected. And if that's the case, we can easily treat you again for, for syphilis. The other possibility is that syphilis can be causing inflammation infection in your brain silently. Uh, and if that's the case then, and if you haven't had any exposure since the last time I saw you, including oral exposures, then the better, the better way to approach this would be to perform a lumbar puncture. And I would explain to the patient what a lumbar puncture is. And then I look at them and I say, which one is the more likely scenario? Could you have been exposed or not? I think by doing that, you're allowing the patient the opportunity to think carefully about whether there was an exposure or not. And over the last 10 years, I've done it many, many times. And six people have told me, I have not had any exposure since the last time I saw you. And I sent them for lumbar puncture. And in four out of the six, there were abnormalities consistent with neurosyphilis, asymptomatic neurosyphilis. So that's my approach to this issue. I don't ask the patient initially. Uh, I tell them what the options are, and then I ask them and get a response that I think may be more, um, um, more valid. But I okay. actually also add to that what you, you do, which is great, Khalil, as I repeat the RPR, um, because I have found that um, I'm not sure that that corrected value is true. Uh, and especially if patients tell me, hey, I haven't done nothing. So I, I repeat the RPR. And that I think is clear in the guidelines where they say, you know, a couple of weeks later, repeat the RPR. And if this increase is sustained, then go ahead and, and do that. And I, I agree with you completely. Yeah, two, two weeks apart, I think is the, yeah. yeah. Good, yeah, not to just jump on one level. Again, you're treating a patient, not the level. Okay, great. Um, let me just look at these questions real quick before we go on to the second case. And I specifically spent more time on syphilis because that is where we see the most common questions in the clinic. Um, um, somebody asked, why would you treat test every three months if you're not going to change your approach? But I think you've sort of covered that, that you know, that's in the early phases when you're judging response, and you don't need to continue to get every three-month treatment when you're following somebody who's got a serofast uh, level. Um, one question, and we're going to get back to this drug in a minute, but would you have the same approach if instead of using penicillin for primary syphilis that you would that you use doxycycline for primary syphilis? So why don't we go ahead and just launch into it? Do you guys think that doxycycline for primary syphilis is an adequate treatment? If so, how long would you give it and at what dose? And if not, why not? I know My you don't answer. have any. Well, go I ahead. think if you look at the data that are out there, and we did a study very early on, there have been many other studies. They're all mainly observational studies. So let's just be clear about that. They're observational studies for doxycycline. And all the observational studies that I've read 
and I've tried to read all of them, they suggest that doxycycline essentially has uh, equal efficacy. And in some papers, it's actually even uh, more efficacious than penicillin, but they're observational studies. Uh, and so uh, I think I feel um, that penicillin is the best drug to treat syphilis. Whenever I absolutely can, I will use penicillin over anything else. Uh, and I recommend it first and foremost as the drug to use. The only time I use doxycycline is when I really cannot use penicillin. Uh, and in that setting, I use it and I sleep very well at night because I think doxycycline is a very reasonable agent. I do two weeks for early syphilis and I do four weeks for late latent syphilis. Never use anything other than penicillin in patients that are pregnant. That's the take home message here. Uh, but otherwise, if you absolutely cannot use uh, penicillin, I think for other patients, doxycycline, the data are reasonable. And I'll just add one advantage of penicillin too, is it's basically directly observed therapy, right? So you know the patient has gotten their doses. Um, if you have, if, if they do have what appears to be something consistent with inadequate response or treatment failure with doxy, I, I do think it's worth just making sure they took all their doses, um, you know, GI side effects uh, or other, you know, uh, reasons for poor absorption or something. It's, it's just worth uh, kind of just making sure um, they had uh, reasonable adherence. And sometimes I find that it appears to be easier for the provider to prescribe something orally than the hassle of trying to find benzathine. Mm -hmm. um, and I've recently heard about some instances of people routinely using doxycycline for neurosyphilis because of the logistical challenges with getting IV penicillin. I think that's a really slippery slope. Um, there is some kind of early data looking at doxycycline at higher doses given um, twice daily. Um, but it is not advocated, it is not mentioned in the guidance. And I think that neurosyphilis is a combination of things. Um, when we talk about the meningovascular presentation, the otic presentation, the uh, ophthalmologic presentation, and to think that we can quickly jump to something just because it's oral without really examining it fully um, with adequately controlled trials, I think um, is going to be fraught with problems. I don't know what the minimum dose is that we give. And I am also concerned about the adherence. So I will bring that up because I've heard increasing reports of people being creative again um, without good hard data. I'll just, I'll just highlight that when I ask people, where did you get this? It is an alternate regimen in the UK guidelines for the management of syphilis. So uh, 200 BID of doxycycline uh, is an alternate uh, regimen that is uh, listed in the UK guidelines for the management of syphilis. And like Kim said, there's one study that was published in Jack not too long ago that had a total of, I believe, 16 patients. It's a case series where they presented data on doxycycline uh, and it worked, it seemed to work okay, but it's 16 patients and uh, we have, you know, decades of experience with penicillin. So it really should not be used. And the only drug that should be considered as a viable alternative 
in during for neurological complications uh, is ceftriaxone. And the data are more limited on ceftriaxone, but at least we have reasonable data. And, okay, why and don't we go on? Why don't we go on to this question? Because these same issues are going to come up. So a, a woman who's pregnant, diagnosed with you know syphilis serologically, doesn't have any signs or symptoms, had last been tested three years ago, was negative, you know, TREP IgG and RPR, so she appears to have late latent syphilis, and her gestational age is 10 weeks. Um, she, four years prior, she had had anaphylaxis when given amoxicillin for a URI, and it was frank uh, anaphylaxis. And so I've laid out these uh, options for you, you know, which would you consider and why the doxycycline or tetracycline, ceftriaxone, uh, desensitization, then PO amoxicillin plus probinicid, or desensitization, then penicillin G times three weeks. So um, which one, ones of these would you experts recommend and why? And uh, I think one of them is fairly clear why you wouldn't, but go ahead. Oh. We actually had it as a poll. I'm sorry, I forgot to put it in there as a poll. Let's go ahead, see what the audience thinks, since most people in here have experience treating syphilis even in pregnant women. All right, looks like we have most of the responses. So it looks like people going with the desensitization, then benzathine, penicillin, a month of ceftriaxone, doxycycline or tetracycline, or amoxicillin plus probenicid. So panelists? Uh, the recommendation is desensitization um, because we don't have good reliable data um, in terms of uh, fetal kind of outcomes. And that's why we don't use doxycycline because there can be bone and teeth um, problems associated with that. The oral regimen that's listed there, again, I think it's people trying to be creative um, and that our, people are looking at oral regimens, but we don't, we don't wanna be creative in pregnancy. We're, we're thinking about an organism that can be transmitted to the fetus and thinking about levels of an antibiotic um, that you need to get into the fetus. And so we would try not to be creative with amoxicillin. And ceftriaxone, we just have limited data in pregnancy. Um, so the recommendation is benzathine penicillin. Any of the other panelists have anything to add? I agree. Yeah, I just, I mean, this woman clearly had um, anaphylaxis, but we may be segueing into this, but just the validity of a reported penicillin allergy um, is very, very low in general. And so um, some clinics can do skin testing or other uh, oral challenge, et cetera, or, or referral to um, allergy and immunology, but just to kind of always question um, whether the penicillin allergy is true. And even if it was a true IgE-mediated uh, response more than a decade ago, it's likely to have resolved now. So just kind of keeping that in mind too. 
The other, the other question that always comes up clinically is if you desensitize somebody and you start the three drug regimen, uh, I've gotten a lot of questions about when I give the second dose, do I, really, do I need to re-desensitize? Uh, and the answer is as long as they've got penicillin in their system, uh, then you're fine and you don't need to redo, you don't need to re-desensitize. The problem is if that patient comes in late to, for the subsequent doses, then you have to make a decision whether you think they still have some penicillin in their system or whether you think that uh, desensitization is warranted because you're starting over uh, the, um, the, the dosing. So that it gets tricky if a patient is late for their next dose, but as long as they're not late for their next dose, you don't have to re-desensitize for those three doses. Once that's over, and if they have something happen to them next year, you actually have to desensitize again. Right. And Khalil, do you want to just mention briefly how, if in the setting of pregnancy, how late is too late when you repeat the series? So excluding desensitization, how, how yeah, long just, between- Sorry, totally is a separate, yeah. Yeah, so in between doses, for somebody that's getting three doses, for non-pregnant uh, adults, 10 to 14 days, 10 to 13 days is what the CDC says is reasonable before you need to restart the, the doses over again. Uh, so 10 days between doses. What we use in Baltimore is 10 days, but up to 13 days is not unreasonable. For pregnancy, we used to say seven days exactly, but the latest guidelines, the 2021 guidelines, allow up to nine days in between doses for, during pregnancy. So nine days during pregnancy in between doses, if it comes later, then uh, re restart the series. 10 to 13 days for non-pregnant uh, patients, if they come later, start the series over again. And one reason I put this case in is because these bottom three have been published either in alternate guidelines or in the literature as alternate treatments for late latent syphilis. But clearly, as you guys mentioned, you don't want to be using the cyclines in women who are pregnant at 10 weeks. And there's um, there's no data I've ever seen for the amoxicillin probinicid regimen in pregnant women and very, very scant data for ceftriaxone. So I think that there's pretty much universal agreement here in the U.S. that the top one would be the, the preferred approach. And also a more recent thing is the change in average wholesale prices. You know, we tend to think of doxycycline and tetracycline as cheap drugs. They're no longer really that cheap. You know, they've gone up in price. And of these regimens, amoxicillin and probinicid is cheaper, but we don't know if it works in pregnant women. Benzathine penicillin is not cheap either, but at least we know it works and it's well worth the investment in the mother and protecting the child. So um, don't go to doxycycline just because it's easy and cheap. It's not really that cheap. Okay, so return of the treponemes. We're back to case one. So six years later, He's had four reinfections with syphilis. He's art adherent, suppressed HIV RNA, not monogamous, you know, U equals U, so that means condoms don't, are not necessary. Would you continue penicillin or PRN penicillin? Would you put him on PrEP? Would you put him on PEP, both with doxycycline, or would you use some other approach?
All right, let's see what the audience decided. So the majority continued the PRN treatment for symptomatic infections or serologic failures. Uh, about a quarter said they would consider doxycycline prep. And then some people were using other approach and other people are saying, PEP, what are you talking about? So we'll turn it over to the panel. What do you guys think? So we don't, we don't know. Um, I don't think uh, right now uh, whether um, doxy prep or doxy pep are um, appropriate. Um, there are ongoing studies. There are a few studies that have already been done. Um, so I, I think at this point in time, I agree with uh, PRN, benzathine, penicillin G. Um, there was a small study. Uh, I want to say it was around 30 MSM where doxy prep. Um, was shown to be efficacious at preventing um, syphilis and chlamydia. And then we also have um, data from uh, Jean-Michel Molina's Ypres-Gay cohort uh, for doxypep, and then multiple ongoing clinical trials looking at doxypep as well. Um, and those trials are actually gonna um, assess the um, impacts on antimicrobial resistance and the gut microbiome. Um, and other things that we just really don't know the impact of yet. And so I think the verdict's still out on this. Um, so I, I, I know that some providers have patients who come back again and again with syphilis or chlamydia reinfections and they're doing um, PrEP or PEP, but I, I haven't changed my practice at this point. So I, I agree with the audience here. Yeah, I'll second that. Okay, and the reason I included this is there are multiple ongoing trials and there was this 30 patient PrEP trial, which it's hard to believe how widely cited that is when it's 30 patients. And you can see here PrEP and PEP, one was the Ypres-Gay extension that Meredith mentioned, and then the other one um, was the PrEP. And there's indications that it might work, but I do think that the jury hasn't even been convened yet, rather than that they're out, you know, we're still waiting for the evidence for them to evaluate. And this was the pre-exposure prophylaxis data from the 30 patients uh, indicating that it might be very active, but I do think we have to wait. So our last case is a young man, MSM, presents with tenismus and rectal discharge. Uh, so symptomatic uh, for tenismus and rectal discharge, a uh, receptive intercourse, has a NAT positive for chlamydia. And the question is, for how long should he be treated? Seven days, 14 days, 21 days, lifetime? Or will the azithromycin one gram work? So uh, I didn't think that one was an audience response. So this is really for the panel. Like this, you know, it's confusing between like asymptomatic chlamydia versus symptomatic and how long do you treat either one and do you need to wait for an LGV serology to come back? I mean, what does the panel recommend? Because we, we see asymptomatic a lot more than symptomatic, but we do see both. I think the simplest way to approach this is that if you have a positive rectal chlamydia test in somebody that's symptomatic, you assume that it's lymphogranuloma venereum strain of chlamydia and you treat for um, 21 days. Um, we don't have a point of care test to tell us that it's LGV. You're relying on your NAT test result. And truthfully, that test result that's going to be sent to the state 
uh, or an outside reference lab is not going to be come back in time to influence clinical care. So you're going to go ahead and treat your patient like they have LGV. There is a small trial that was done in the UK showing that a short course therapy um, may work as well for patients with LGV, but the data is small. It was an uncontrolled study. The recommendations are not based on clinical trial. They're based on knowing that the chlamydia trachomonas LGV strain is more tissue invasive and it needs longer treatment. So it's not based on a, a particular study. Because this is more invasive, it can cause severe disease. And so the treatment is prolonged for 14 days. Um, the azithromycin, I think you're throwing in there, um, based on the results of two randomized controlled trials that were looked at for asymptomatic chlamydial infection, one that was done in the US and one that was done in Australia, showing the same results for rectal infection that doxycycline is superior to azithromycin, even with imperfect adherence. There was such a stark difference in treatment efficacy that it was astounding. And we had got some of that data from observational studies and from a meta-analysis showing that there may be a difference, but it really was very stark um, in terms of looking at the data um, in the RCT. So people like azithromycin because it's again, direct, you can be directly observed. Patients take one, um, take four or 500 milligrams um, at one time and then they're done. But the differences for rectal infection, both clinically and also there are biologic plausibility, um, looking at this in cell culture models that show that doxycycline is the preferred drug. And to summarize also, to, or to reemphasize, if you have symptomatic disease, treat for LGV. Okay, and I'm just gonna skip past that. Um, I'm gonna skip the expedited partner therapy thing because I, I, that would be a much longer discussion. I did wanna get to this last case in our last few minutes. So a 28-year-old female seen by her primary physician, hasn't been seen in a while, um, has a male partner and a female partner, um, believes that both are monogamous with her, and she uh, was screened for HIV and chlamydia um, at age 24, everything was negative, she's asymptomatic, and she's just here for a routine appointment. And does she qualify for GC chlamydia screening according to the 2021 recommendations? So she's 28 years old and was last tested four or five years ago. And so does she qualify? And if so, if so or if not, what do you guys think about the USPTS? I'm trying to stir up a little bit of antagonism between the two recommendation groups. So the think, issue Meredith? is it. Oh. Go ahead, Kim. No, you started, Meredith. Go ahead. Go ahead. You're... Well, I, you know, she's over 25, um, but she hasn't been screened in four years when she was 24. She has more than one partner. Um, so I, I think 
you know, a, a conversation too with her about if she wants screening. A lot of our patients come in and they, you know, want screening, quote unquote, for everything. So um, I think uh, shared decision making is important here also. I was okay. just going to bring up the point that the question is whether her partners have other partners. So she may be in serial monogamy, but her partners may not be. Um, so she's essentially having contact with somebody that has contact with multiple people. I, to me, this is not controversial um, that she should be screened. She's having, um, she's having multiple partners and basically the recommendations call for um, multiple, you know, if you have multiple partners over the age of 25, you need to be screened for chlamydia as well as, as for gonorrhea. Although the reason that I was reading it as controversial, they then in the very next paragraph say, although we have no data on LGTBQ populations to support this recommendation in those populations. So that you could read it as they recommend it or they don't recommend it. But I agree with you, Kim, I think she should be screened. And then uh, people can look at the slides when they get them. So my last question for the panel, this is a graph I made of the dosing recommendations of ceftriaxone for gonorrhea uh, over the last 20 some years that I could find all the STI guidelines. And I think you can see we're on an, ep an upward trend for ceftriaxone dosing. Um, should, you know, do we think that we're going to be using a gram by next year and two grams in five years? Is there an upper limit that we're gonna be using? Uh, what about alternative regimens? Should we continue to use cefixime as an alternative? What, what do you guys recommend in the last few minutes for gonorrhea in 2022 and 2023? So I, I'm sure the other panel members can speak to this better than I can, but my impression of the increase in the subtraction dose is that you want the serum-free drug um, levels to be above the MIC for 24 hours. And I think the 500 milligram dose does that very, very well. And we were almost there with the 250, um, but in the small minority of cases where the MIC was a little bit higher, we, we, didn't, we didn't cut it. Um, but I think, I, I don't wanna say going to 500 and, and Kim, please speak to this, was, was conservative, but I, I do think that it, it you know, we were almost there with 250. So I'm just not sure how soon we'll go higher. Um, I, I, I think maybe it's going to be interesting to see what the subtraxone MICs do now that azithromycin is gone. Um, but anyway, they I'll let the other panel members speak, but I, I just, I don't know that I see it happening soon. I would highlight one thing. I would add one thing. Um, keep in mind that both cefixime and gentamicin are not effective, very effective drugs for pharyngeal gonorrhea. And that's a huge problem, right? So uh, ceftriaxone is still quite effective against pharyngeal gonorrhea at the 500 milligram level, but we still recommend that people with pharyngeal gonorrhea get a test of cure two weeks after ceftriaxone. And we say, don't use anything other than ceftriaxone if they've got pharyngeal gonorrhea, because cefixime, for example, the dosing of cefixime of 800 milligrams once 
times one is not nearly enough to cover uh, pharyngeal infections. And genomycin in some recent studies have shown, has shown that it's not very effective against pharyngeal gonorrhea. So the big problem is going to be, in my opinion, the, the, the management of pharyngeal gonorrhea uh, in, uh, in the next two years. Uh, it's actually a problem now if you can't use ceftriaxone, right? Because you really don't have any recommended options to treat pharyngeal gonorrhea other than ceftriaxone. So that's I one think reason what, why what, I included it. Oh, go ahead, Kim. I, I think that um, just to, if people want to dive deep into the history, um, there's going to be a nice background paper um, on the historical perspective of why the changes were made in the um, in clinical infectious disease April 15th supplement. There's a nice background paper that gives a lot more data in terms of the history behind this um, and why the decision was made to do this. Um, and it was done on the basis of two things. One, there was a modeling study that, that looks at kind of the current MIC that is um, the MIC that's um, in the US kind of at this point of kind of putting all the data together from the surveillance system that it's been in place at CDC for over 30 years. Using that and, and looking, diving deep in the PKPD and looking truthfully at that 250 milligram dose, even at the urogenital site, it, it's really 99% effective, but the confidence intervals are really large. Um, and then when you're thinking about the different anatomic sites of infection, in particular the pharynx, um, because of those wide confidence intervals and the, the need to stay above the MIC of the organism in such a, a difficult site to eradicate gonorrhea, that um, data in combination with some mouse data um, looking at resistant and sensitive strains those two pieces of data together um, helped make the decision to increase the dose to 500. So it's hard to think about when the next time to go up, there was a lot of hesitation because even the 250 milligram dose is 99% effective at eradicating urogenital. It's the other sites that are important. And the other, gonorrhea is just not important in the US, it's what's going on globally. So where these strains are coming from and where we've seen the treatment failures um, has been in Europe, some cases in Europe, as well as Southeast Asia. So it depends on what our global partners are doing and how they're managing antimicrobials, whether it's going over the counter and getting whatever you want off the shelf that may influence our microbiome. So it's not only here in the US, so it's very difficult question to answer because what's happening elsewhere does affect us in the US. But if you look at that paper and look at those two pieces of data, you can really dive deep and understand on the rationale for the increase to 500. All right, thank you. The, the reason I wanted to include this specific case is that We've become way too comfortable with our ceftriaxone and you know not needing test of cure unless it's pharyngeal. But if there's the least little bit more creep in ceftriaxone resistance, we're gonna see a lot more breakthrough pharyngeal gonorrhea and we don't have great treatment regimens. 
And there was a recent study of Listerine gargling, which somebody thought would work, and it clearly showed that it doesn't clear pharyngeal gonorrhea, unfortunately, for the Listerine company. <laughs> so thank you to my panelists, and you guys were lovely and wonderful, and um, we'll leave the panel discussion now and lead directly into the next presentation.